Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Canada's newest premier worries the Canadian Federation is fractured and is calling on the federal government to not funnel nearly 70% of equalization to Quebec. And he supports resumption of the Energy East pipeline talks and challenges Trudeau's national carbon tax. The new premier is Blaine Higgs of New Brunswick. He spoke with me. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe has spent a lot of time with us on the program in 2018. I spoke with him about all of the issues that concern him most for his province, for Western Canada, and for the relationship between Western Canada and the federal government. Here's what the Premier of Saskatchewan had to say in a year-ending interview. A Global News year-ender poll with Ipsos dealt with the federal government and dealt with Canadians' view of the Trudeau government and the opposition parties. I spoke with Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos, about this. There have been truck convoys in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and in February... A major truck convoy from Western Canada to Ottawa to visibly and audibly express Western frustration with the Trudeau government's indifference for the energy industry is in the planning stages. Nicole Waffle is with Rally for Resources in Alberta. She spoke to me. In May of 2009, Bella Kosoyan was a University of Montreal law student, an immigrant from the former Soviet Union. She speaks five languages. She was on an escalator, and she ignored, sort of, the pictogram which instructed her to hold onto the handrail. Two Montreal police officers took her to task, arrested her, and now the case is going to the Supreme Court of Canada. I spoke with Velika Soyan about this. With us now is the newest Premier in uh, the Canadian Confederation from New Brunswick, Premier Blaine Higgs. Premier, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure, Roy. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Uh, headlines got my attention and the one where you've expressed concern about the Canadian Federation being fractured. Could we start with that? What are your concerns? Well, I, I guess I attended my first First Minister's um, uh, conference back a few weeks ago in Montreal. And um, as, a, as a, the new uh, newbie on the block, um, it, it seemed like, um, you know, we had a some areas that were of national concern, and, and one of the primary areas for me was was the uh, devaluation of the natural resources in Alberta and, and the oil prices at seventy percent of their value. Uh, you know, I expected that to be kind of a high on the agenda. Is, is how do we address this as a nation? Because, you know, I, I as a one province here I have been recipients of, of transfer payments, and not that I'm proud of that, but and I want to work my way out of that. Uh, but it's it's fact of life. So Alberta's resources have, have fed a lot of families across this nation, and I, I expected to see more of a rallying cry. And I, I saw that from, from many provinces, but, but most notably coming east. I didn't see it from Quebec. And they, of course, get the lion's share, close to 70% of equalization. That's exactly right, and that, that makes it even more of a, of a, I guess, a sticking point. And, and in fact, it, it was just increased, wasn't it, by about a, a billion? Billion, a billion one, four. Billion three. Billion four. Yeah. So it, it seems like that's a real slap in the face. And, and I, uh, you know, all provinces are, are lined up. We had a project coming east, and, and um, I, I'm looking to try to expand our capabilities here. We have, we have uh, you know, uh, water. We have transportation. Uh, we have a lot of uh, experience in, in large ships and oil transportation. In fact, it's the industry I came from. We're the largest refinery here in North America. We have an opportunity that uh, is being shut off by, by one province. And that's the Energy East pipeline. That's correct. That's correct. And and it, it wasn't a you know an economic situation that that uh, stopped that project. It was it was politics, and it and it's happening again. And uh, and it, it's disappointing because we're looking to try to grow our economy here and, and not just be sent uh, you know dollars to just kind of buy something and be quiet. Um, I, I think we all have a national obligation here, and I and I felt that in that meeting, and and I was just disappointed it wasn't uh, it wasn't shared. Uh, Shared where I thought it should have been. So there was no real interest in provinces in central and eastern Canada then for oh, yes, any resumption. Indeed. I'm sorry. Well, yes, indeed. There's there's interest in Ontario and in Saskatchewan and Manitoba and certainly Alberta. Uh, very strong interest, but but there wasn't any interest shown by Premier Legault in Quebec. Okay, and, I um, more and, I, and I find that surprising because 
you know, on the rail side, uh, Quebec is transporting probably 100,000 barrels a day on rail cars, uh, rail cars through the province. And, and you'd say, you know, pipelines are, would be much safer transportation. There's also crude oil coming up the river, uh, St. Lawrence Seaway, into the refinery and uh, Levi. And you'd think, well, this would displace much of that. So there's a real environmental advantage here, but but there didn't seem to be a political interest. You know, we've talked about that a great deal on the program, Premier. Some 800,000 barrels a day are brought into uh, eastern Canadian refineries by uh, from, from overseas. Um, and, and they and they arrive, uh, certainly don't arrive uh, by way of pipeline. They arrive by way of tanker. And yet when you look at the Leger poll, and I spoke with the Montreal Economic Institute representative yesterday, that Leger poll shows 45% of Quebecers favor the pipeline as the safest mean of transport oil. The next percentage, highest percentage, is 14% tanker trucks, and then 13% the trains, and then tanker ships are down at 9%. So when the when Premier Legault talks about there being no social license, I, I don't know what he's talking about. Plus, the Leger poll shows that uh, Quebecers, by a 66% majority, would favor their oil coming from Western Canada. The next highest number is 7% from the United States. Well, and that's that's those are very encouraging statistics because I I certainly would have would have thought that if people really uh, look into the transportation mode that that would be the reality, and so I'm hopeful you know that this doesn't become a uh, you know a, a battle as such, but it becomes a rationalization of what makes sense for our for our country to displace foreign oil, to have a national energy policy, and we talked about a, a utility corridor that would would house not only pipelines for gas or oil but also um, hydroelectricity that Quebec wants to export, and also communication strategy. It could be a, a quarter like many years ago when, when this, the railroad certainly was set across the country. It's kind of a nation-building uh, phase-in um, of our natural resources that displace foreign oil, and then as we go to gas, and then as we go to renewables. It's, it's kind of a phased approach as we tra- have a transition economy. And and I it just seems to make you know perfect sense, but it doesn't seem like it's going to happen politically, federally. But I'm hopeful that, you know, as our provinces get together, and I'm encouraged by the meetings I had with, with the provinces from, from Quebec West uh, through to, through to uh, Alberta, uh, talking about the Energy East project. So what, are your, what, are your, what do you think the chances are, realistically? And if, well, uh, if, if Alberta elects uh, Jason Kenney and a and United Conservative Party government, there's a real firewall against the carbon tax. We've been talking about that for some, some months now. But what do you think the real chances are of Energy East, which should be in operation now, shouldn't it just be de- being talked about or debated or discussed and be, and be subjected to sound bites? What do you think the chances are of Energy East really being in play again? If, if Premier Legault, and, and I mean, I did have a good discussion with Premier Legault, and, and, I, and I understand the, the, the political sensitivities, but, talk, you know, the statistics you just raised, if we were able to sit down and talk and, and have a communication strategy where people could see the options, I'm, I'm convinced it would come back. But, but TransCanada is not going to invest more money. They, they spent $800 million to a $1 billion in a project that, that never got a decision from the, from the National Energy Board. So they're not going to come back and spend more money. We need to find a path here. And our path right now is trying to get a, a position in Quebec. Uh, federally, coming into election, um, the federal government will, will not do anything in this regard. And, and I'd spoken to, to, uh, to the prime minister, and, and basically he said, if, if, if Quebec shows an interest, then come and see me. Well, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can find a path through here to do what's right for, for many provinces. Because uh, it's we're not just we're not looking for the handout. We're looking for a, a commitment for the future, and, and mm-hmm. we want to earn our earn our keep. And many years ago, the Eastern Canada was a great supporter of Central and, and Western Canada. I mean, funded the Seaway back many years ago. Uh, we want to be that uh, you know be noted again. And it's just because we don't have the voting population that we kind of get left on the end of the string. Yeah, you mentioned the word handout. And that's what it looked like when the Liberal government promised some $1.6 billion to Alberta. But with, the, with that promise or that commitment, there was nothing about getting, uh, the, getting oil to market. It was just a, just a stopgap. It's public relations scheme, I think. And, and it's borrowed money. It's, it really is. We're in debt. We're running massive deficits. Our national debt is, uh, is encroaching on $700 billion. All you have to do is allow the energy sector to do what it does and do so very professionally. 
and we start to have billions of dollars pouring into the Treasury, into the national economy, it just makes absolute sense. And yet here we are, Premier, and I'd like you to talk to this, speak to this. We have the Prime Minister still insisting on his pan-Canadian carbon tax. And on the 1st of January, in just about a week's time, it's going to go into effect. And I know you're not supportive of this, and very much so not supportive of this. Why is... Would you speak about the carbon tax to us, please? Well, we're going to get hit really, um, really hard here in New Brunswick. Um, and we, as you know, I've only been in, in the government for about a month now. And we found that the policies that was put forward by the previous government were not accepted and were not meeting the, the carbon tax um, kind of uh, plans, federal plans. And and so we, we're going to get imposed upon us, the national uh, position, and it's going to have a a strong disadvantage of New Brunswick with other Atlantic provinces. We are meeting our emission standards, and we are well on track to meet meet our standards for 2030. And and I am very focused on regulating industries to, to ensure that we do that. We are taxed to the highest or, or close to the highest in the country in this province, and we don't believe it, it's, it's something we should just impose upon people. And so I am lined up with uh, with Ontario and Saskatchewan and Manitoba and and potentially with Alberta as well, and uh, that we we do not support it because it's not necessary to meet our emissions standards, and that's the goal. Our goal is meeting our targets, moving to a green economy. We're all on that page. Use our own resources while we have an opportunity to do so, but but not put more dollars for government to spend. All I see this is another revenue source for the federal government to try to buy more votes across this country. And that one, that money that was allotted to Alberta just recently is like a slap in the face. Rather than make a decision and help you on your, to, to move on your own, we're going to try to buy you off. And that's what happens all over this country, is trying to buy votes and buy an election with our own dollars. It, it, it's disgraceful, really. And, and we see that over and over again and in this province, and we see it in other provinces. Fifty cent dollars for things we don't need. Is our federation in real trouble? Well, you know, it makes you wonder if our if if Canada is a nation or a notion. Um, and, and it was my first meeting, and I met some wonderful colleagues, and, and some I shared uh, a lot of conversation with. And, and I know that uh, prior to the meeting, I had uh, had the opportunity to talk with the Premier Mo. I understand he's going to be on your show in the next little while. Um, I had a great discussion with him, and then I met the others for, uh, firsthand when I when I arrived there. And, you know, I saw a lot of interest in our... We have diversity, but I saw a lot of, of strong people that wanted to do what's right for Canada as a nation. And it's like we've got to make some real decisions. I asked the question in the meeting if any real decisions were ever made in these meetings. Did we ever come out with, with something that we actually had a plan to, to complete and finish and, and make happen? And someone who owned it. And we talked about a utility corridor or having this, but it didn't get approved at the end of the day to... To, to make it happen. So it's like you communicate something that, oh, yeah, we all got together. But when do you really put a target? And I saw people that wanted to see just that. And, you know, and I think the prime minister would like to have had that, but it, it, was, it wasn't able to achieve it, and maybe that's the norm. But sometimes you just got to make a decision, and they can't all be about politics. We have to find ways to move our nation forward, and, and that's what I'm trying to do here in New Brunswick. Well, I've heard you just say, do we have, is Canada a nation or a notion? And Premier Mo said in June, I think it was, when we were talking about the Trans Mountain Extension and the influence Premier of British Columbia appeared to be having on the discussion uh, with the Prime Minister, and uh, Premier Mo asked the question, do we have a nation if one province can have this level of, of impact? turn that a little bit or some significant uh, amount to the east, you start to maybe ask the same question about Quebec's impact on equalization. Yeah. So do we have, is Canada a nation or an ocean? Or that's your, your question. And Premier Mo asking, do we have a nation? When I hear that from two premiers in Canada, I'm sitting up yeah. and I'm paying very close attention. Well, and, and we need to pay attention because we have a lot to protect in our country and, and we have a lot to be thankful for. And, and it's just we have to make real decisions that benefit, the, the, you know, the, the Canadians as a whole. And, and I'm, I, I'm concerned and that's why, you know, I talked about, you know, having an impact on transfer payments or cutting transfer payments because there has to be a cause and effect to decisions. 
And what typically happens, you know, you prom- I'll promise to just pay more money and give it to you if you'll, you'll vote or support me. But there's no cause and effect that says that, look, if we're going to have our resources that are devalued by 70 percent, and, it, and it's, it's having a huge impact on revenue streams coming into the, not only the provincial coffers, but the federal coffers, and it has no impact on the amount of money that com- comes out. In fact, the province that's blocking it even gets more money. I mean, what kind of logic is that? There is no logic. There isn't any logic. And that's why people stand back and look at this and say, well, this makes no sense. How, how can we make the proper decisions if people see no impact from the decisions they make? If somebody's handing me $13 billion and not expecting me to contribute something significantly toward the collective effort, I'm probably also at some point, Premier Higgs, going to say, well, this is nice. This is fine. Thank you very much. I'm not going to change it. Keep the money coming. So going back to the original question, the original premise in our conversation, uh, yeah, Quebec has to, uh, has, to, has to understand that they don't just collect 70% of equalization and, and then slam the door on, on, on pipelines and make decisions for the rest of, that harm the rest of the country. Well, and that, that's where I think that the opportunity lies is for us as provinces to meet and, and uh, you know, and talk to, talk to Premier Legault about, about the potential here. Because federal governments have, have been have proven to be not able to make it happen. And, 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 I, and I know that that's supposed to be the way it works, but it, it hasn't. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm excited about the first meeting I had, but, but meeting with colleagues that are, are interested in coming east. And, and, you know, and I had good meetings with, with Premier Horgan about, about the issues they have out west because uh, just on a, another topic, uh, they're building this big LNG plant. And this LNG plant is, is their $42 billion largest capital investment, private sector investment. And Privy Horgan was very proud of that project. And I said, you know, that that's really, really, uh, you know, an exciting venture. Right. Well, what's interesting about that? He's here in New Brunswick. I mean, Premier Horgan... Is Premier, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but can I get you to hold for just a minute? I do have to get a, a, a break in here. And I've ignored sure. it because I've been fascinated by what you've been saying. Can you hold on? Oh, sure. Premier, we have about two and a half minutes, and I really appreciate you taking the time at such short notice. So if I can just ask you to encapsulate again for us what it is we require in this country to move forward collectively and positively and as a nation... Well, or I think we need to we need to set some strategic priorities, and and certainly one of them in relation to what we've always been uh, known for and what has kept our economy going would be our natural resources, and and there is a phase out of, of fossil fuels, and I understand that, but at this point in time, we're importing hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil that we have right here in Canada, so uh, on a priority like that that helps fund our provinces, we should be able to set uh, a clear path forward. That gets gets agreement between provinces to make it work nationwide, and we had that strategy working here. And and, and I know on the east because of we don't have the voting base, uh, the voting base a lot a lot doesn't um, you know get a lot of uh, airtime. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today because we had a project, a real live project that was moving in a direction. I had met with Trans Canada several years ago. They had the project was going to finish and be in service by now, and politically it got stopped with all the roadblocks put in place. We have Bill C-69 that's going to kill further expansion of any sort of natural resources in in oil um, and gas. So it's some strategy that we live by regardless of what government's in power. The problem is we're too volatile between elections. Elections completely turn our nation's plan on on its head. And and we have a totally different philosophy of how we fund the things that are important to us as Canadians. And, you know, just putting it on the credit card, we can't do it at home. It's pretty basic stuff. You just can't keep doing it to buy your election. Now, Premier Higgs, thank you so much for the time. Wish you and your family the very best for Christmas and uh, 2019, and I hope you'll come back. Thank you very much, Brian. All the best, and Merry Christmas to you and your family as well. Thank you, sir. Premier Blaine Higgs from New Brunswick. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Quick. 
Premier Mo, thank you so much for the time all year long, and I appreciate you coming on today. Oh, thank you, Ray. I spoke with your counterpart from uh, New Brunswick, Premier Higgs, in the last hour. And it's interesting. He was speaking about, as you know, about the uh, um, the federation and equalization payments and Quebec getting that massive amount, almost 70 percent, and uh, and talking about the need for Canada to really be uh, a country with a direction and a, and a focus. And he said something that reminded me of what you said. Premier... Uh, Pierre said, uh, is Canada um, a, a nation or a notion? And you, of course, asked the question, are we a nation? And that was the time when we find ourselves embroiled, as we are now, with the issue of pipelines and energy and the energy industry and maximizing what is a natural resource and really has an opportunity for us that many other nations don't have to, uh, to, to, to maximize our success and our economic strength. And, 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 and I, I ask myself, uh, I think those are great questions. Are we, is Canada a nation or an ocean, or, or do we have a nation? Uh, c- could we start with that? I may, it may not be the best place to start, but I, I kind of like to, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I asked that question uh, back when we were, you know, having some conversations about how we could possibly get a, you know, TMX at that point or Northern Gateway or, or any access to our West Coast with uh, – our, our sustainable uh, energy products from the Prairie Provinces, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and and, uh, and a little bit from Manitoba. And I think the the question uh, remains as in light of uh, some comments uh, after the first first minister's meeting, uh, with respect to attempting to uh, get get a similar type project out to Eastern Canada. And, and I think um, you know the, just the 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 preservation of our of our status as a wealthy nation, uh, it causes us to have this conversation. If we are going to be equals and share in our wealth through the equalization program in some way, shape, or form, and we can discuss how that happens, um, we, first of all, need to always be cognizant that we actually have to create that. And, yeah. yeah, that's a that's a, a, a something that Premier Higgs uh, is very attuned to, as, as we are, as we have a very... Um, synergistic project that is good for New Brunswick, good for Saskatchewan, and, and good for Canada. And really, we should all be uh, we should all be on the same page on this because, again, so many nations do not have what we have, do not have the resources, do not have the instant ability to con- and, and the continuous ability to to prosper and and, and achieve the uh, the goals of the nation. Now, you tweeted. I'd like to talk to you about the uh, the convoys that are taking place in Saskatchewan sure. and in Alberta. Yesterday uh, there were there were convoys, and Wednesday there was the the massive convoy in uh, in in Alberta. I spoke with the organizer of the convoy in Estevan yesterday, and he told me that 48 hours prior to the convoy it was just an idea, and by yesterday there were 570 trucks. So, would you please uh, tell us in your words? I mean, what what your what's your sense of the significance of those convoys? What is the message that is clearly being delivered? Well, I think two things. First of all, I, I think it speaks to the to the ability of these individuals uh, uh, in the, in the energy industry or in in industries in general. In the case of Estevan, um, uh, their ability to get things done. Um, they are some of the most capable, uh, forward-thinking, innovative uh, people that show up uh, for for the job to do, and they leave, they don't leave until it's finished. And and this is the way this this industry has been. And when we task this industry with uh, with uh, with challenges, uh, they meet it each and every time. Whether they're they're economic challenges, whether they're environmental challenges, these are the guys in Canada that get the job done. Second of all, um, in in over the course of of uh, just two days, coming from a notion, if you will, of uh, of a rally to uh, over 500 trucks in Estevan, I think there was over 2,000 in Edmonton. There's more of this coming. There is severe frustration uh, in our energy industry uh, here in Western Canada with respect to. Uh, the oil differential that we're experiencing and the reasons uh, behind that are viewed largely as being policies coming out of the out of the federal government. Um, you know, let's recount those policies. Uh, C-69 is, is in the process of killing Energy East if we're not able to stop that bill. We had C-48, which was a tanker ban that killed Northern Gateway. We had a drilling moratorium go on in the Beaufort Sea, which killed the, the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline. We have TMX that we're all proud owners of now and, and, and increasing uh, questions on whether that's ever going to be built as we don't have a path laid out going forward. And piled on top of all of this, this regulatory uncertainty and, 
and uh, or really, uh, in many cases, unnecessary, uh, we have a carbon tax uh, attempting to be imposed on, on all Canadians. And, and that's the frustration that you see in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And I think you're going to see in the days and weeks ahead a lot more of that frustration coming out in, in, uh, in, the, in the ways that these guys uh, know how to show that frustration. And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you, the government of Saskatchewan supports them. And Premier, the carbon tax is being unloaded by the federal government in a matter of days. They're going to attempt to, that's right. Yeah. Um, federal government says it has the constitutional power to do so. The, uh, Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan disagrees with that. Right. And you have quite a number of allies that are going to court with you, including Nova Scotia, uh, New Brunswick. That's right. I keep wondering about uh, Mr. Trudeau's argument that monies collected by the carbon tax will be returned to the people of the provinces. I'm still trying to make trying to make that sen- make sense of that. It it just takes me back to what Premier Wall said at the time that the Prime Minister Trudeau first made that statement, and the, the response was, "What's the point?" But yeah, and we're still there, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. What What's the point? It, listen, this is a this is a program with with no environmental outcomes. Uh, nowhere has it had uh, positive enviro- environmental outcomes uh, around the world where it's been introduced, uh, despite what our Federal Minister of Environment says. Even the studies uh, that the Prime Minister and the Federal Minister of Environment uh, continue to uh, lean on as a carbon tax being effective, and we saw the the uh, Canadian, uh, the Canadian uh, uh, parent Beatty come out with some comments uh, yesterday. All of those studies uh, assume a number of things. Everyone in the world is going to do a carbon tax. That isn't going to be the case. The USA, China, and India are not. Um, they also assume that it'll be many hundreds of dollars per ton, likely thousands of dollars per ton. Um, I would hope we don't see that here. They also assume, and this is most importantly, that all other carbon-based regulations will be removed, and you allow the carbon tax to do its piece. The federal government, the prime minister, has said time and time again that that the uh, the uh, regulations aren't going to be removed. In fact, they're going to add more. So they're contradicting uh, the the actual facts within those studies. They're contradicting the whole premise of of uh, of the policy that they've introduced. And we're, as I've said before, we're creating this regulatory abyss where our foreign direct capital, our 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 domestic capital, is moving to other markets. And this at a time when the equalization payments are being, or at least equalization system, favors only one province. Very much so. 66% of those dollars uh, are, are heading to one province, and this is the this is where our federal leadership has has gotten us over the course of the last year. Um, you know, just to, to go back to where we started this conversation on, you know, are, are we a nation or a notion uh, here? Um, most certainly. We have a number of uh, premiers across uh uh, across the, the nation that do believe we have a nation. And I think you're going to see a number of premiers start to come together to, come together, uh, to work uh, in the best interests of Canadians uh, from an economic perspective, but also from a, an environmental uh, perspective. And I've said on this show before, uh, we should be exporting our, our sustainable uh, energy products, our sustainable agricultural products all around the world and, and uh, exporting them competitively and aggressively attempting to offset the dirtier products that are produced in other areas of the world. This is what Canada brings uh, to the whole conversation. I, I was in Beijing and I was in uh, Delhi uh, over the course of the past few months, very polluted uh, cities uh, from an air pollution perspective. Let me ask your listeners this. Do you feel in any way that a carbon tax in Saskatchewan is going to affect the pollution in those cities in any way, shape, or form? I, I think not. What Saskatchewan does have to offer those cities is is innovation in agriculture and new agricultural techniques that will uh, essentially allow them uh, not to have to burn their crops and not not to have to uh, have those carbon emissions enter the air. What Saskatchewan can bring is carbon capture and storage for their for their coal fired electrical electrical sector. Uh, this is what Saskatchewan can bring to uh, places like that in the world is innovative uh, innovation and and information essentially that that will clean up uh, the air in those areas. Why do you suppose the federal government and the prime minister are are rejecting Saskatchewan's approach as they're rejecting Ontario's approach? I have no idea. That would be a good question to bring the prime minister onto your show and ask him uh, that very question because, uh, in essence, in Saskatchewan, uh, they accepted our our plan of prairie resilience. Uh, They want to go further and put a a tax on gas and a tax on heating heating, uh, oil uh, here in the province. Why they want to uh, why they want to tax uh, 
the hardworking families of this province, I, I will have uh, no idea uh, when they've already accepted our plan to reduce emissions uh, from our heavy emitters and from our industries in Saskatchewan. That, for the most part, our industries actually support because we worked as a government very closely with the potash mining industry. We worked very closely with the refining industry and others uh, here in the province. Yeah, and they're, they're battling with Manitoba as well. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I spoke yesterday with a representative of the Montreal Economic Institute about the Leger poll that was done about Quebecers' attitude toward pipelines and toward uh, Alberta oil. And again, I find it really fascinating that we have uh, Premier Legault saying the dirty oil of uh, Alberta is essential or the dirty energy is not welcome in his province, as are pipelines not welcome, as though they were some rickety outfit that... uh, that they've just you know, s- stuck a wedge underneath it to try to keep the thing level instead of it being some of the world's cleanest and best and brightest uh, technology involved with pipelines. But you have 66% of Quebecers, 66%, saying that they their preference as far as oil is concerned heading into Quebec is from Western Canada, 66%. The next highest percentage is 7% from the United States. Then you get down to Algeria, 3%, Nigeria, 1%. And the Middle East and Saudi Arabia, one percent, and you also have pipelines as the, uh, the the most approved method to transport oil, as far as Quebecers are concerned. Forty-five percent of them are saying uh, pipelines. Fourteen percent are saying tanker trucks. Thirteen percent are saying train, and nine percent are ta- saying uh, tanker ships. And then finally, Premier, this one really uh, caught my attention when uh, when the representative of the MEI said. As far as the carbon tax is concerned, 76% of Quebecers are saying yes to reducing greenhouse gases. 40% are, are willing to pay. But when it comes to the to the, to the the gas pump, 32% are willing to pay a carbon tax of $0.05 cents a litre. Then it's down to 16% are willing to pay $0.10 cents a litre. And I think we should maybe re, re, replace the word willing with can afford to. Yeah, absolutely. And the $50 a ton, I think, is 12 or $0.13 cents a litre. Yeah. And if you uh, look at the conversation happening at the federal level now, they're already talking about going uh, far beyond $50 a ton. Uh, this is nothing more. I think uh, I listened to Premier Higgs earlier. Nothing more than a shell game. Uh, this is a plan by the federal government to to uh, extract money uh, from Canadians and then give it back to them and try attempt to buy their votes in certain areas. Uh, it, that's, it's nothing more than that. It is not an environmental plan. It's simply a vote-buying scheme. I've said that before, and I stand by it. Amir, can I just ask you to share with us, please, what the most significant issues were in 2018 for the province of Saskatchewan and and how you see 2019 for Saskatchewan and then also for the rest of us in this country. What is, what's going to matter most? Probably, uh, well, without a doubt, the most significant issue uh, we had in this province was one that was uh, not really had a lot directly to do with politics, but it was uh, uh, the loss of so many in a, in a bus crash that we had out, outside of Humboldt, our Humboldt Broncos. And, and uh, you know, I think it's incumbent on, on us in this province and across the nation to remember, especially at this time of year, this, this holiday time, that uh, we're, we're all celebrating with our family. And we know there's people across Canada that are celebrating uh, um, without a loved one uh, this Christmas. And, and they need to know that that our thoughts and prayers are with them this Christmas, and uh, and and we are in that, we are at that table uh, with them, supporting them each and every day. Well from, said, uh, sir. Political or, yeah, from a political or an economic perspective, uh, we've had some headwinds in this province in our energy sector, in our potash sector, and uh, and in our uranium uh, sector. Uh, thankfully, agriculture has been uh, strong, and manufacturing, uh, despite some some steel tariffs, uh, continues to be uh, fairly strong here in the province, and. Uh, we're starting to see some resurgence of the natural resource prices in in those sectors, and uh, and uh, but we we continue to see some headwinds coming in the in the regulatory approach from the federal government. So as we pivot and close this year out and and look to uh, next year, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful with the regional and and provincial leaders and territorial leaders that we have around the table that that we will have some good conversations uh, throughout this next year uh, leading into the Council of Federation meeting, which we're hosting in, in Saskatoon here, and we're looking forward to that. And there's always the added element of uh, of uh, that discussion, uh, obviously, in a, in a federal election year, which which uh, is what it is. Um, I'm more about getting the proper policy on, on the table as opposed to, uh, you know, the politics of it. Yeah, and it really is remarkable, isn't it? The, the, the opportunities that exist in Canada... The options that we have, the, the broad base of availability, uh, just again, our, our economic strength. We're an, we're an international economic powerhouse. 
if we take advantage of what we have available to us. But if we erect uh, uh, boundaries and have uh, regulations that, 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 that impede progress, it, it makes no sense. We, we, there's no reason why our national debt should be heading up uh, north of $700 billion and why we should be looking at, uh, I think the number was another 42 years potentially, before the federal government's uh, budget is, is balanced. It just it, it, it makes no sense. Well, it, it, it doesn't. And sometimes you have to make the difficult decisions uh, to get column A and column B to balance from time to time. That We do that in our household and we do that in our in our businesses across the nation. We embarked on a on a three-year plan in this province where we made some quite challenging uh, decisions and we'll be balancing, we'll introduce a balanced budget next spring. We'll likely be the only contributing province to equalization that will be able to say that um, in the short term. Um, on the uh, opportunities in the economic powerhouse, uh, Roy, there's no better example of that than, than, than the Energy East project, uh, taking creating jobs uh, in a sustainable industry when you align, uh, compare it to energy industries around the world, but a sustainable energy industry in the Prairie Provinces and and moving uh, that product to New Brunswick and, and, and putting New Brunswick uh, families and people to work uh, there and exporting uh, that product uh, around the world and selling it to Canadians. That, that there's no better example of, of the economic opportunities, the sustainability opportunities uh, that we have moving forward than that project right there. And, All right. and I'm committed to doing whatever I can to push that forward over the course of the next year. Excellent. Premier, thank you so much for the time uh, this year. So I always consider it uh, a, a pleasure and a, and a privilege to spend time with you on the air. Well, thank you, Roy, and I'd, I'd just like to wish you, uh, everyone into, at the station, and uh, and all of your listeners across the country uh, a very Merry Christmas and and, uh, and the very best in the new year. I, I view it as a very hopeful new year, and I'm looking forward to thank it. Thank you, sir, and the very best to you as well and your family. Take care. Looking at information from Ipsos polling for Global News, I just want to read a little bit from the news story. Uh, quoting Daryl Bricker, who will join us in just a moment, the CEO of Ipsos, when you look at the numbers right now, we have the Liberals with a five-point lead over the Conservatives, and they're leading in all the places they need to lead. They're leading in the big seat regions. They're leading in Quebec by a fair amount, leading by six points in the province of Ontario. They're even leading in the 905, the seat-heavy region surrounding Toronto. Indeed, 40% of Quebecers said they'd vote for the Liberals, compared to only 21% who said they'd vote Conservative. Ontarians' approval of the Trudeau Liberals wasn't as strong, however, with 39% saying they vote red compared to 33% who would vote blue. Daryl Bricker, the uh, CEO of Ipsos, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Daryl, thank you for the time. You know, as looking at the numbers, I was it made me remember 2015 and how much changed in the last couple of days before the election in 2015, but you go with what you've got at any particular time, and would you say that if the election were next week, Mr. Trudeau, with with the numbers you have, be in fairly secure territory? Yeah, he looks pretty good, and it's it's just not, you know, what the national numbers are. It's pretty much what you said, which is he's doing really well in all the places that count. Uh, Now, the other thing is, when you take a look at the conservative support levels, they're doing really well in a couple of places, but there just aren't that many seats there. And those places are uh, provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan. In Alberta, for example, they're over 60% in terms of, uh, in terms of popular support. So it makes their national numbers look a little, bit, a little bit better than they actually are when it comes to seats. Now, is the support that uh, Mr. Trudeau has... Is that firm, or is there some fluidity? And and where is this? In in what group is the is the is the support strongest? Well, when you take a look at Mr. Trudeau now, our, our prime minister, uh, he's certainly a more divisive character than he was going into the last election campaign. But he's the only uh, party leader that's actually defined. The other two, uh, Jagmeet Singh and uh, especially Andrew Scheer, are really just a reflection of their party's brands right now. So the things that they would normally say about the parties, they also say about the leaders. So uh, those two leaders at this point really haven't established themselves in the consciousness of Canadians. So that's the opportunity for them going into the next election, which should be around October next year. Yeah. Where does the NDP fit into all of this? If Mr. Singh doesn't have that much uh, visibility and, and, and really hasn't made an impression on the Canadian electorate, the opportunity is still there for them to do something. And if they do, 
that would then probably most negatively impact the Liberals. Yeah, it would. Uh, the biggest group of uh, switchers that we see between two parties is really between the Liberals and the NDP. Uh, and where Mr. Singh c- could prove to be a bit of a spoiler is not in Quebec, which everybody tends to look at. It's really in Ontario and in British Columbia. In British Columbia, of course, the NDP uh, holds power. They have the provincial uh, government. And in Ontario, they're the official opposition. So there's a good base to build from in both of those places. And even if the Liberals go down you know, maybe three or four points in either one of those provinces, and they switch over to the NDP, that's a big problem. Because there's really two voting blocks right now, Roy, in Canada. One of them is the progressive block, and it splits between two parties, and the other one is the conservative block when it's really focused on one party. So when the progressives split, that's when the conservatives win. I'm just looking at some of uh, Trudeau's stumbles. You had the India trip, you've got the Cotter payout, Uh, rising anger in Western Canada, which is spreading across the country. You have a firewall of premiers who are now opposing the carbon tax and are taking that opposition to court. That's going to get a lot of attention and probably drive much more, uh, at least drive a message for the conservatives forward, at least maybe make Mr. Scheer more um, more visible and and better understood. Uh, There's the carbon, like I said, the carbon tax, the ethics violations, the focus on globalism. I just see a lot of attack hats there, Daryl. Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot for Mr. Shear and and for Mr. Singh to work with. On the other side of the equation, you know, buying the Trans Mountain pipeline, uh, not being able to get his climate plan uh, uh, ticking along to the level that uh, the, uh, I guess, the world climate experts say that it should be at. There's a lot for people on the left to uh, to look at as well. Uh, but at this stage of the game, none of those things really seem to be tripping up Mr. Trudeau that much. Uh, lots of potential for him to have problems going forward. Uh, but it's really going to be up to the, uh, the the leaders of the two opposition parties to take him on. He's not going to defeat himself. Okay, I have to ask you this, because there was another poll that came out a couple of days ago, which has Trudeau slipping noticeably with his support at 35%, was at 46 and at the end of 2015 it was at 63%. They also suggest Trudeau is no longer seen as the major national political party leader, best suited to be uh, prime minister. What do you what do you say to those uh, those particular numbers? Well, yeah, I saw the same poll. Uh, let me just say we don't have that. <laughs> okay. um, I don't know how they came up with that, but I, the, the level of animosity towards Mr. Trudeau is not, uh, we're not seeing it in our polling. Um, uh, certainly more of a divisive character than he was, mm-hmm. uh, even a couple of years ago. Uh, but at this point, uh, still by far the favored, uh, favored leader among the three that uh, the Canadians would be choosing from. There's a long, time, long way to go, though, right? Yeah, there is. And, and the thing to really focus on at this stage of the game, Roy, is not so much what people think about the leaders, what they think about the parties. It's it's where they are on policy. And that's where you see the opportunity for the Conservatives really emerge. So when you look at the things that people really care about, they tend to be disproportionately economic, where the Conservatives tend to do better than the Liberals. So I think that you're going to start seeing Mr. Scheer move forward with a more aggressive position on uh, on some economic considerations, and that may get him some traction. Now, what about uh, the uh, the People's Party? We haven't seen really anything emerge yet. Uh, there might be a, a couple of people voting, uh, considering voting for the uh, couple of percentages of the of the population, uh, thinking of, uh, of of looking at Maxine Bernier. But so far, at this stage of the game, is really not having any impact on uh, on, on popular uh, support for any of the parties. Okay, I spoke with Maxine Bernier a couple of weeks ago. And he was telling me that they have at least some writing associations uh, uh, groups in place. I don't want to uh, misquote him here, but in over 300 writings in in the country already. Do you see any way in which uh, that it would be possible for Maxime Bernier and the and the People's Party to actually be uh, a significant player, maybe a, a a decision maker or a spoiler next October? Well, unless he catches a lot more fire than he's uh, than he's currently uh, showing. Uh, to Canadians, no, he's really not having much of an impact. Uh, there's a lot of parties for people to consider. I mean, from the Green Party through to the NDP, the you know the two the two major parties, and and so there there wasn't like a crying level of concern for anybody on the strong right in Canada. That's not there's not really a, a lot of uh, a fertile public opinion to build on when it comes to like the the types of policies that Mr. Uh, that Mr. Bernier is putting forward. So uh, it, it seems to be a bit of a solution in search of a problem. Okay, and, and at this stage of the game, uh, not too many people are taking a look at it. 
All right, Daryl, thank you very much for the time. It's always good talking to you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Same to you, Roy. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Canada. And there will be more of uh, Ipsos year-end poll will be released over the next number of days on Global News. So be sure to watch that and find out what the numbers say. Now, as I understand it, a massive truck convoy from Western Canada to Ottawa to visibly and audibly express Western frustration with the government's indifference for the energy industry is in the planning stages. And we're joined by Nicole Wapple of Rally for Resources in Alberta. Nicole, thank you very much for taking the time. What is Who is Rally for Resources? I know you've been around since, what, about 2016? Yes, yeah, that's right. Thanks for having me, Roy. Yeah, good to talk to you. Yeah, it's just um, a couple of oil field families. Um, there's me and my husband, a grandmother from Okotoks, and actually a lady from Manitoba that helps out. So uh, convoys this past week, as I said, have made a very strong statement to Ottawa, but you're looking at organizing this convoy to Ottawa for pipelines in February, and the targets, as I understand, are built specifically built C69 and C48. Uh, and, pipe, and tidewater access, market access, of course. Yeah, market access, of course, yeah. yeah. So uh, where are you now as far as the process is concerned, uh, putting this thing together? Um, we're going to let Christmas kind of um, let people get Christmas over and done with, and then we're going to break out into some teams, like a logistics team, accommodations, um, the, the actual uh, rally team for Ottawa and that kind of thing, and start the planning phases. Any, uh, any doubts you'll get a lot of interest? Uh, I already have a ton of interest. I, I would have thought I, so, yeah. Yeah, I can't keep up with the, like, the emails, even the phone calls, the messages on Facebook. Um, yeah, I, I need to sit down for probably four hours and go through them and respond to people. Yeah. So. That speaks volumes, doesn't it, about what has happened and where we are now, where the frustration level is with people who are finding it very difficult to just make ends meet and are okay. looking at how, how the federal government of, of this country is being so disinterested while they're talking platitudes and disinterested in the energy sector. It's, that's so true. And, and, you know, these convoys and rallies are, are great, and it's, it's good to see um, somebody finally standing up for this industry because I don't think anyone ever really has. And that's kind of our mandate is to get all levels of government, industry, and grassroots to stand together. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you see the number of trucks out there parading, that, that's alarming. They yeah. shouldn't be available. I mean, people shouldn't be, they should be working. Yeah, exactly. And that point was made yesterday as well, that these trucks should be on the road, but they should be on the wor- on the road making money for their, their owners and being busy uh, creating uh, economic uh, benefits right. for not only Western Canada, but the whole country. Now, okay. we're, we're all in this together. Yeah, absolutely. It's all of Canada. And it, it, it's not even... I mean, it's everyone, too. We know it's real estate agents. We have friends that are home-building contractors that are, that are being affected. Um, oh, I just... The impact of, of bad policy and, and the lack of access is just... I think everyone is at their wit's end. I don't... If well, we don't, exactly. I think this needs to be successful, and we need to do this, and we need to, we need to take it to Ottawa. So now, not hearing us. so now we're talking about the trucks that were on the road yesterday... And they're on the road on Wednesday that should have really been on the road making money and, uh, and, and doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. But now you're talking about a convoy that would go from Western Canada, from Alberta to Ottawa to make the case. There's a major commitment for anybody who's participating, taking their trucks again off the road doing business, because maybe for them it's, well, what business is there? Exactly. I don't think there, there isn't much to lose at this point. That's so frightening, isn't it? It is. really yeah. is alarming. Yeah. And I'd also like to mention that we are going to work with, um, there's a lot of actual, uh, pro-resource groups out there, and they have, they've been around for years, and I don't think they get enough credit. So, so we're going to kind of form a coalition to plan this and do this, and that's, there's a list of at least eight of us. There's us in Canada Action. Mm-hmm. Um, Bernard Hancock, actually, from Vancouver there, is, is going to join us. Oilfield Dads, Oil, Oil Sound Strong, The North Matters, which is Northwest B.C., Fort St. John for LNG, Fort Nelson for LNG, and then the uh, Grand Prairie Rally and Convoy Group, the ones that organized the Grand Prairie Rally last week. So we're, it's going to be a big team effort and, and a kind of a coalition of, of grassroots groups that have been working at this for a few years now, and, and um, we're finally seeing you know, a reason for us all to kind of get together and, and really push this. Do you have even uh, 
an idea of how many vehicles might be engaged, involved? I'm not sure. I would be happy with 25 or 50. I, I have a feeling it might be more, but... And my sense is going to be much bigger than that. You think so? Oh, yeah. I don't have any doubt. And I wouldn't be surprised if you're joined by um, people who are truckers and uh, people who have a, a connection with the energy industry. We all do. I if you're joined so. by people along the way in other provinces who will just get on, get on, you know, I don't want to use the word tag along, but participate spontaneously. Absolutely. And even... I wouldn't be surprised. If Eastern Canada came on board, you know, there's a... Quebec, there's support in Quebec for this. Well, you know, we did the interview yesterday with uh, with the Montreal Economic Institute. Their their survey, their Leger poll, shows that uh, 45% of Quebecers, that's the biggest number of, anything, of any group, are supportive of pipelines. The next biggest number is 14% right. for, for trucks. And then uh, Quebecers' preference regarding the country of origin for imported oil is Canada, with Western Canada at 66%. The next highest is the United States at 7%. So that's Quebecers. So you've got uh, the Premier Legault talking about dirty energy. Well, according to what Leger found out, and this is what they told us, there are the elites in Quebec who have one uh, perspective, and then there are the people who have the other, and that poll reflects the people. Nicole, thanks for joining us, and uh, I'll stay in touch with you, and we'll keep find out how this how this is moving forward. Great. Thanks for having right. me. Oh, how do people get in touch with you? Real quick. Um, we're on Facebook. That's where we have the biggest presence is on Facebook. Okay. Twitter, info at rally for, like the numerical for, resources.com. Okay. All right. Take yep. good care. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. It was May of 2009 that I first spoke with my next guest. She'd made headlines because... Uh, And she was a University of Montreal law student and an immigrant from the former Soviet Union. She speaks five languages. She's a semi-professional chess player and the women's coordinator for the Canadian Chess Federation. Her name is Bella Kasoyan. And Ms. Kasoyan had been on an escalator in the city of Laval, which is part of the greater Montreal area. And she had not been holding on to the handrail on the escalator. Now, there had been a pictogram, and you know what they're like. They show a photograph, or not a photograph, but the image, the created image of a person uh, on an escalator holding onto the handrail, and that pictogram included the word careful. So Bellicuswine was not holding on to the handrail, and at that time, I should tell you this, there was a lot of concern about H1N1, the flu virus, and there were lots of people who didn't want to hold on to anything where the public was in contact there was a lot of concerns, a lot of fear about the flu at that time. Anyway, uh, Balakasoyan was uh, challenged by a police officer on that escalator for not holding the handrail, and that has now resulted, we go fast forward nine years, there are lots of stops along the way, but it's now resulted in Balakasoyan being, she's going to appear before the Supreme Court of Canada, who is going to hear her case. And Balakasoyan joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. It was a surprise to hear from you again uh, last week, Bella, but I'm glad you got in touch. Yes, hello, Roy, and hello to everybody. Thanks for inviting people to your show. Yeah, well, it's great to have you back. So just remind us, please, in your words, what happened on that day in May of 2009? It was May 2009, 13th of May. I was going to school. It was about uh, 5 o'clock. And I was riding escalator. When I stepped on escalator, I went to throw my bag and I picked $5 to be able to pay for my transit. So one policeman passed uh, on the left side uh, and another policeman passed too. So at this moment, I was stationary. I was not moving. My backpack full of books and computers was on my back. So second policeman, when he approached me, told something. I did not understand he was speaking with me or with somebody else on the stairs. So I turned my head on the right to, to find out who is standing there, whom to address. So I, I, I realized there was nobody, and the escalator almost was empty. So he told me something, and I assumed in my head that I had to hold on the handrail. So, and I told him that it's my right to hold the handrail or not to hold. So suddenly he turns towards me, and he asks me for documents. And I asked him, what have I done? So suddenly another policeman was already down on the escalator. He came up quickly. They grabbed me and they took me. I thought, what do they want these guys from me? You know, I was in my thoughts. I was going to school because it was time of exams. 
So they put they took me downstairs. I did not know they had detention room. So one guy policeman was opening door, and when I they opened door and I saw there was a cell with the cages, I got scared. When I stepped in a cell, I asked to call a lawyer. So when I asked to call a lawyer, suddenly they started to push me, and they they were very rude towards me, and they took my backpack was already on my back. And they handcuffed me. So, and I spent with them about 30 minutes. I cannot tell exact time how much I spent with them, but it was about 30 minutes. All this time, I was asking which article of law I violated, which regulation I had violated. Do I have to know what I was charged or something, why I was stopped and why I was arrested. So all this time, we, about 30 minutes, we spent in detention room, and I was asking a couple of times what I have done. And I found out that I uh, <clears throat> violated pictogram, and I was charged as of the destruction of uh, police uh, peace, police officer. Yeah, and I got fine of uh, four hundred twenty dollars. And all you've done at this point is you were not holding onto the handrail, and there was uh, there was a pictogram that suggested you should. And now you find yourself arrested in a in a cell, and you've been handcuffed. They also they also uh, said you'd been screaming at police officers, and that you'd attempted to jump the turnstile, yeah. and uh, and 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 other things. Which I think you're not a very tall person, so jumping the turnstile would have been quite a challenge for you. Yes, none of this was true, of course, because like I mentioned, they are, I mean, like I was told before, I don't know, did I tell you, mentioned that tried to reopen my case three times to find criminal charges against right. criminal charges against me, but uh, they could not find anything. If I was guilty of everything, they claimed that I was screaming, insulting, anything, I would have a fine of $50 or swearing at the police officer and a fine of up to $100 for disturbing the peace. So... so- so, so Bella, so now you you have fines close to five hundred dollars, right? Yes, four hundred twenty dollars at yes. this point. Yeah, so you're you're now looking at, at paying fines for four hundred and twenty four hundred and twenty four hundred fifty dollars, uh, and you went to court in Montreal Municipal Court in two thousand and twelve, yes. and you were acquitted. Yes, I was acquitted. Judge told that uh, that uh, there is no regulation to force somebody to hold handrail, and uh, police was not credible because. So, so you at that point, you you then sued the uh, the uh, the Mon- Montreal Transit Corporation and the city of Laval and one of the police officers, right? Yes, yes, I sued them, and uh, I lost my case in first instance. And judge uh, claimed that uh, decided that uh, uh, police was irreproachable, and uh, they did not find their conduct was abusive. Okay, so. The judge, uh, the first judge sided with you, the second did not. And, and now the, the case moves forward. And was, was the next court the court, Quebec Court of Appeal? Yes, it was court, uh, Quebec Court of Appeal. I appealed the decision of lower instance. And uh, two judges were against me. And one judge, Rager, was on my side. So he wrote his decision. His decision was about 15 pages, saying that the pictogram pictogram by itself is not mandatory. So it's because on pictogram by itself, it's written a caution. So as a reasonable person, we have to know what we do in this situation. So if policeman is forcing you to to hold the handrail for non-existing law, it becomes dangerous. Well, and and this is something that uh, you said to me when we spoke earlier in the week, and I and I and I and I paid close attention when you said that. We'll jump ahead a little bit here. Whatever the decision is that the Supreme Court decides, whatever the Supreme Court of Canada decides, is going to have an impact on everybody in this country. Yes, of course, because uh, if Supreme Court decides that uh, if I win my case or if I lose my case, it's going to cre- create a precedent in a case law. So they are going to look up how reasonable policemen uh, can act in this situation and if they can force somebody to do something which is not a law or a regulation. So you understand now it, it concerns everybody, students, yeah. listeners, travelers. Right. So uh, are you surprised that it's actually gone to the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court is, is hearing your case, Bella? Actually, I am surprised. And at the same point, I am happy that Supreme Court decided to take my case because it's in the public interest. Mm-hmm. So it concerns everybody. 
like I told, uh, escalator users and even tourists, because we have these escalators even in our airports. So, and I would like to mention that escalators are, are, are the pictogram already installed on escalator. So they cannot buy escalators without this pictogram. So it does not belong to transit commission system. It belongs to escalator company. Yeah. How much is this all going to cost you? I said $100,000 before yeah, the break. Yeah, approximately, yes, because I don't know <laughs> approximately, yes. And this is coming out of your pocket? Yes. All this time I was fighting by myself. I was alone, and the nine years I kept quiet for not raising anything, any voice or anything. But uh, now when it went to Supreme Court of Canada and it's going to create a precedent, it's very important. It touches everybody, every Canadian. Since the recent government recently changed the law, so that, so that when it comes to drivers, to the police, no longer need to act on the basis of reasonable suspicion. So because I grew up, grew up in Soviet Union, and unlike Canada, we knew that police could get away with doing whatever they wanted. So my case, because of it, it's very important because I'm fighting against abuse of power. And if police abuses power, if they can force somebody to hold handrail or not, it's not just about handrail, but it's about non-existing law. Well, yeah, you can't uh, enforce a law that doesn't exist. That's yeah. a violation of, uh, of, of, uh, of a citizen's rights. I just want to remind people that your blog, again, is uh, one, the number one, becomes many, dot Wix site. That's W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com. One becomes many, dot Wix site dot com. You can, um, you can get onto Bella's blog and, and follow along. And maybe somebody will have an interest in starting a GoFundMe page because a hundred grand is a is a lot of money, and the case is going to affect us all. Boy, when you look back at everything that's exp- that you've gone through, everything you've experienced since that day in May of two thousand and nine, it must seem surreal. Yeah, it was. Uh, I I had to fight all this by myself. It was really difficult situation because I could not tell anything. And I couldn't raise any points. And at the same time, the police, before it, police, <clears throat> before my case went to, police was investigating my case. They went and they assassinated my character. If you read the ruling of the judges or anything, you will see that uh, they don't touch law, but they are going there and uh, destroy my character. Mm-hmm. So it's a, li- it's a little spooky. Yeah, we only have about two and a half minutes. There are also video cameras in the in that area, but somehow the video never appeared. Yes, you are right, because uh, like uh, next day on 14th of May, my husband requested videos, and six video cameras, they disappeared, all recordings, even though the police told that if I, I can file a complaint and uh, watch a video, and, uh, prob- and it's a piece of evidence. So videos never appeared, and judges could not come to conclusion videos were destroyed, do they have videos, or what's happened with videos, because it's a very important piece of evidence. I also want to add that uh, Justice Mark Schrager of the Quebec Court of Appeal added in his dissenting opinion, he sided with uh, Bella Kassoyan, he concluded the pictogram was, quote, a warning, end quote, and someone who saw it was under, quote, no obligation to hold the handrail at risk of receiving a fine, end quote. So the, that uh, judge in the Quebec Court of Appeal said that the officer was wrong and had no right to, uh, to fine Bella Kassoyan. Uh, it's just amazing to me and, and, and concerning to me that you can find yourself uh, with handcuffs on and, uh, in a prison cell for not holding a, a handrail. I know the, uh, they, they argued that you hadn't been cooperative with them, but you're entitled to ask, why you're being questioned. You have the right to ask. Yes. Yes. And I have the right to ask, and police has to tell why I am. Yeah. I was held and why I was handcuffed. Yeah. When, uh, do you know when the Supreme Court's going to hear the case? No, I, I don't know exactly because we have to file all papers before, uh, before beginning of February. So time is so short. So we have to file all our papers. So probably the opposite party will file their response in March. So we have tight, limited uh, time of to be able to file all papers. It must help that you're a very, very skilled chess player. <laughs> that you that you can deal with all of this. Yeah, 
Yeah, like I was a same profession like you mentioned, and I was women's coordinator for Canadian Chess Federation more than for five years. And after this, I had to step down from the position because I did not want to find myself in the situation where you are stopped and handcuffed for not holding handrail. You know, especially when you are born, you grow up in Soviet Union, you know. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you how many times I've not held a handrail. And I'm sure at that time, particularly in May of 2009, when there was the H1N1 concern, I think I think a lot of people uh, refused to hold handrails or do anything that got them into contact with the surface the general public had been in contact with. Bella, thank you for the time. The uh, blog, again, is one, like the number one, becomes many, one becomes many dot Wix site, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com. We'll talk again. Thank you, Bella. All the thank best you. to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. And for me and everybody on The Roy Green Show, a very Merry Christmas to you and all the very best for 2019.